Turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, the longer reading this morning, uh, all of chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 26. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We are currently in a series working through the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, um, chapter by chapter. And uh, we're in chapter 7 today, as I mentioned last week. Next Sunday, we're going to take a, a brief break from our series in Deuteronomy. For the month of December, we will uh, follow a very ancient Christian tradition, and that is uh, reflecting uh, and meditating on Psalms as a guide to understanding the meaning and significance of the first coming of Christ. So we'll be doing that together for Uh, the month of December, which I'm very much looking forward to. But today, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 26. Uh, Let's give our sustained attention to the reading and the hearing of God's word. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, And clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. 
And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, therefore, or there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Well, I wonder what you think of when you think of the church. How do you view the church? Uh, some people view the church as nothing more than a building or another social group. Or another nonprofit organization. It seems like here in America, increasingly many people view the church as uh, just another special interest group, perhaps even a voting block that needs to be won over. But what does the church look like through God's eyes? How does God see the church? The Bible gives us a, an answer to that question with dazzling number of images and descriptions to describe the nature of the church that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is building. The church is a family. The church is 
a temple made of living stones as a habitation for the Lord. The the church is a city on a hill. The church is a body. The church is a bride. And that's not all. We could could keep going. In addition to all of these images, this passage teaches us to see God's people in at least two other ways. First, we are God's treasured possession, God's chosen possession, as Moses puts it in verse 6. And second, we are God's army, as this entire passage makes clear. We're not just a bride or a body, we're an army. And both of these images ought to inform and shape how we live today as God's people, as God's chosen, treasured possession. We are called to live lives radically and exclusively and yes, even fiercely devoted to the Lord our God. And in this world, that means war. It means war because there are powerful forces at work who simply will not let us go without a fight. Like Pharaoh, who would not let God's people go. There are forces that will not let God's people go without a struggle. And so let's explore this passage this morning. It's a large passage. We're not going to look at all of the details. But with the time we have, I want to focus on what I think are the two major themes that will help us grasp the message of Deuteronomy 7 for God's people today. First, I want to think about a holy war, and secondly, a chosen people. A holy war and a chosen people. Now, let's just recognize that right out of the gate, Deuteronomy 7 contains some of the most difficult and disturbing commands in all of Scripture. Because when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, He not only commanded his people to take possession of the land that he was giving to them, but while doing so, to utterly annihilate its former inhabitants. Verse 2 says, You must devote them to complete destruction. Show no mercy to them. Verse 16 adds, Your eye shall not pity them. These are really difficult commands to contemplate, especially if we actually think about what it meant to carry them out. I think it's all too easy for us to read this without really considering what, what it would have been like. And I don't think we should be too quick to try to relieve the discomfort of this passage. I mean, after all, it's, it's the Bible that teaches us that every human life is precious in God's sight and that every human life is possessing of dignity and value because all people, regardless of gender or age or ethnicity or ability or disability, are made in the image of God. And so the deep questions and the disturbing emotions raised by the conquest, they're not necessarily out of place. They can be misguided for sure, but to feel the disturbing force of this passage is 
not out of place. I think we are meant to be disturbed. If, if we, frankly, if, if we are not disturbed by this passage, we're not listening. <laughs> but we also need to keep in mind the, the larger story or context in which these commands are given and in which they make sense. In the final analysis, we cannot forget that the entire history of salvation, the story of redemption, revolves around an epic battle between the forces of good and evil. We, we must not forget that immediately after the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, that God himself spoke to the serpent. I wonder if you've ever, have you ever noticed this, that the very first pronouncement of the good news of the gospel in a fallen world was directed to Satan. Yes, you know, the man and the woman are standing there and they're, they're hearing what, what the Lord is saying, but the Lord is specifically directing his words to the serpent. That tells us something, I think, about the nature of the gospel. It is directed at God's enemy, and from the beginning, it is a declaration of victory through conquest. You see, the good news of Genesis 3.15 is that God is going to make war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Do you remember what Genesis 3.15, the Lord says, I will put, the Lord himself will establish this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and then it narrows down to the singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then we need to also remember it as we try to make sense of Deuteronomy 7 in the context of the whole Bible, just as Adam was named God's son, so Israel corporately is identified as God's son in a passage like Exodus 4, verse 22. And, and now, as God's son, they're going back into the, the garden-like land, the Eden-like land of Canaan, and God's son is called to finish the business that Adam failed to do in the garden. The Canaanite conquest is part of this bigger story. The story of God's son preparing a place for his bride by overcoming evil. And if you don't, if you don't understand this larger battle, then you really will not understand the Bible. For example, the reason... The Son of God appeared. Let me emphasize the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Was to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason Christ appeared. And we're in Deuteronomy 7, but we're still going to find a way to talk about the first coming of Christ this morning. He is the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the serpent. He is the true and better Adam, and he is the true and better Israel, because he is God's true and better son. He is the true and better Samson, 
whose greatest victory was accomplished in death. He is the true and better David. This always gets left out in the children's versions, but he's the true and better David who decapitated his enemy with his own weapon. Just as Jesus overcame him who had the power of death by laying down his life on the cross. The ancient serpent was defeated. Him who had the power of death was defeated through the death of the Son of God. And so as we try to make sense of Deuteronomy 7 together this morning, we, we, have, to, we have to remind ourselves we cannot pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New as if we're somehow dealing with different deities or as if the God of the Old Testament were just a God of wrath and judgment and the God of the New is a God of love and mercy. No, they, they are one and the same. And to push it a little further, if anything, the New Testament only intensifies things. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is described in some of the most disturbing language that we find in, in all of the Bible. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, Jesus is described as a mighty warrior and a conquering king who comes on a white horse and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Here are John's words. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so, friends, if, if, if we remember... If we remember Paul's principle, Apostle Paul, that he, uh, he mentions to the Corinthians that what took place in the Old Testament, that what took place, uh, the things pertaining to Israel, took place as an example for us, literally as, as a type for us, then we'll understand that what happened in Canaan is a disturbing depiction of judgment upon the wicked or as Deuteronomy 7 puts it as those who hate the Lord this is why Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein used the word the language of intrusion to describe what is going on in a passage like Deuteronomy 7 when we read Old Testament stories like the judgment for example of Sodom and Gomorrah or the conquest of Canaan these are previews of final judgment they are places where the in a sense the judgment of God intrudes impinging on this present evil age even before the end ultimately comes and so I think it's right to say that the moral problems and objections that we might have with this passage, not the disturbed feelings that we have. Again, I think we ought to be shaken up by this passage, but the moral objections that might be raised against this passage really are, at the end of the day, problems that we have with the gospel itself. Issues we take with Jesus Christ in his work as Savior and Judge. 
They're problems we have with the one who will come in glory and judge righteously to execute final judgment. See, the the problems that we, we have with the one who has already come in his first appearance to wage holy war by laying down his life for us and overcoming all of his and our enemies. And so within, within this larger story, I think it's also crucial for us to keep in mind, I don't think I can emphasize this too much, it is absolutely crucial for us to keep in mind that there are different epochs, there are different phases in which the war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent is being fought. You know, on the one hand, God's, God's promises and his purposes do not change, but the way he administers his rule, his kingdom, this holy war, takes on a variety of shapes throughout redemptive history. So there are, there are different periods of conflict within this larger battle If we can adopt the language, then there are different rules of engagement for God's people. So under the old covenant, one way of making sense of this is to say under the old covenant, God's people fought flesh and blood enemies because the people of God were organized as a flesh and blood nation state among other nations. God's people were set apart and organized as a political nation state among others. And it was through the people of Israel that God promised to raise up the seed of the woman, a flesh and blood descendant of Abraham and and David, who would deliver in the fullness of time the crushing head wound to the serpent. This This is what we read in the gospel, that Jesus came as the divine warrior to destroy the forces of evil. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now up to that point, okay, we're good. We're familiar with this. But Paul goes on to describe what Christ did in laying down his life. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, Christ is the victor. And so now that Christ has come and the gospel is to be proclaimed to all nations... God's people are no longer called to advance God's purposes by fighting flesh and blood enemies. And we should say that it is a great tragedy that throughout much of the history of the Christian church, that the church has sometimes failed to recognize this decisive difference in the way that God calls his people to fight today. Think about how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6, passage we know very well. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Now, I've just, I've just quoted from Ephesians chapter 6, and something that hit me while I was studying in preparation for this, it is, it is so fascinating to rec- recognize that Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches is bracketed by these two themes. God's sovereign choice, his predestinating love in Ephesians 1, and in Ephesians 6, holy war. What today we typically talk about in terms of spiritual warfare. And I say that's fascinating because those are the two themes dominating Deuteronomy chapter 7. We do not, but it, as, as we think about this, we need, to, we need to keep in mind that this massive change has taken place under God's new covenant. As Paul puts it, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Nevertheless, there's a lot of things we needed to, to cover there to get to thinking about what this passage means for us today. I'm convinced there remains a great deal that we can learn from the directions God gave to Israel under the old covenant war policy. There are, I think, timeless principles that we should apply to our own spiritual warfare. For example, when Moses calls God's people to devote all of their enemies to destruction, God is teaching us how we are to treat our sin. This is... That might sound strange to us, but this is how the Christian tradition has read Deuteronomy 7 throughout history. Some of you know that um, I'm working on a project right now uh, for my D-Min that is generally related to what's known as the capital vice tradition, what later became misnamed the seven deadly sins, and I'm focusing on one particular vice. But one of the things that struck me is how writers in that tradition, consistently rely upon Deuteronomy chapter 7 and the mentioning of seven nations that Israel had to conquer as they entered into rest. And what they were saying is just as Israel had to conquer seven nations to enter the land of rest, the tradition was saying that there are at least seven major sins that we all have to confront and resist to and drive out on our Christian journey. Now make of that whatever you will. Okay, I'm not going to linger on that. We are on solid ground when we recognize that we are not called to fight against flesh and blood. But we are called to put our sin to death. Jesus applied this very principle. He, he said, remember how he graphically put it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Show no mercy. Uh, Fight a holy war. Just as Canaanites remaining in the land would be a corrupting influence on the people of God, so sin left alone will lead people to turn away from God. And Jesus says it's better to enter life crippled than to go to hell with two hands. If nothing else, Deuteronomy should cause us to take this fight far more seriously than we often do. To not, to not grow slack, to not make excuses. The reality is there are, there are sins in our lives that if we 
if we try to live alongside of them, if we try to coexist with them, they have the potential to destroy us. And so I think, I think one of the reasons that we find this language in Deuteronomy 7 so disturbing is not only to think about what it meant for the ancient Israelites, but in thinking about what it means for us today is, frankly, we just, we just don't take sin very seriously today. And just, just ask yourself the, the, the series of questions. Are, are, would you describe your relation to your own personal besetting sins as holy war? Are you fighting? Are you, are you fighting tooth and nail? Do, do you really view yourself as a soldier at war or have you embraced the lie that these are peace times? Or have you done what Israel would go on to do, simply give up the fight and to make the foolish mistake of thinking that you can live alongside your sin and prosper? There's a very, there's, that, that's, a, that's a very general application of this passage that at the very least it teaches us how we ought to treat our sin. Remember that famous line from John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But there are, I think, at least three more specific applications that we can draw from this, this basic principle of holy war. Israel in this passage was called to be, was called to be politically, socially, and religiously distinct from the people of the land that they were entering. So, so here are three spheres of our existence that fall under the umbrella of this war policy. There's a lot of application. We're just scratching the surface this morning. But think about the first. Israel was called to be politically distinct from the other nations. As we read in verse 2, you shall make no covenant with them. In other words, Israel was prohibited from entering into any treaties or political agreements with the people that would, that would compromise their calling to carry out their mission as the Israel of God. And it, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to think of ways that Christians today are tempted to enter into political alliances and compromise our identity and mission and witness as the people of God. And Deuteronomy 7 is reminding us this is simply something we cannot do. We must make no compromise with evil. We must remember, this is not, this is not a, a teaching that is encouraging us to disengage from the politics of this world, but it's saying that as we do so, we must remember whose name is upon us. We're to be politically distinct, and secondly, we're to be socially distinct from the other nations. As we read in verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. No political or marital alliances, which in the ancient world were often closely related to one another. Think about King Solomon and all of his wives. Many of those marriages were political alliances, right? But Christopher Wright 
uh, I think, helpfully notes that this prohibition, we need to recognize this, this prohibition was not on ethnic grounds. Right? This, isn't, this isn't about uh, marrying someone from a different nation or different ethnicity. The ground of this prohibition is not ethnicity, it's idolatry and immorality. Mixed marriages are, are not off bounds for God's people. Think about Moses. Moses himself had a Cushite wife. But what God rules out is any kind of social relationship, you know, marriage being the, the ultimate example, that would lead God's people to compromise their commitment to the Lord. And so we, we need to remind ourselves, uh, you know, as young people, as we think about our friendships, as we think about the potential of perhaps being married one day, we need to remember that it is a treasonous act to marry someone who does not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ to yoke yourself in the closest bond of affinity with someone who does not share that fundamental allegiance and love. That this is why Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? As God's people, we are called to, to be not only politically, but also socially distinct. Finally, Israel is called to be religiously distinct. We read this in verse 5. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. What God is doing, God is, God is calling for the removal of idolatry from among God's people. And particularly if we understand the nature of space and the promised land, God is calling for the removal of idolatry, idolatry from the midst of sacred space. Isn't there? There is always a temptation to adapt the worship of God to the prevailing idolatries of the culture that we find ourselves living in. And this can take place in a multitude of ways, in, in obvious ways and in subtle ways. You know, here in America, we worship the idol of self. We worship the idol of self. And so we prioritize positive emotions and comfort, and, and entertainment. You know, we'll, we'll gladly listen to anyone who promises to make us feel good about ourselves. And it is so easy to turn the church into just another a producer of that kind of commodity. I, look, I, I, I feel this temptation all of the time 
as a pastor who has to stand up and talk in front of people. To be honest with you, I felt that temptation this week in preparation for this sermon, understanding that I, it flies right in the face of our religion of you know, what some have called therapeutic deism. It's so easy. It's so easy to turn worship services into entertainment where people come to consume and have a good time rather than having the understanding that we are coming into the presence of God to serve him in worship. It's so easy to just take it in as if it were a a concert designed for our consumption or as if we were coming to hear a public speech and we are the sovereign listener sitting in the pew judging the quality of the speech rather than entering into the assembly of God's people called to participate in the worship of God. You see, friends, there are all kinds of subtle idolatries that need to be smashed, that need to be smashed to pieces, not by waging war in the flesh, but by speaking the truth in love to these cultural strongholds in a spirit of meekness and gentleness to destroy these false ways of thinking. The church should be religiously distinct from the surrounding culture. And for what it's worth, I am convinced that this is a reality that the evangelical church needs to recover in our day. That the church should be politically, socially, and religiously distinct from the surrounding culture. Now, this brings us to the second major theme of this chapter, which we're going to cover more briefly, and that is God's sovereign choice. <clears throat> Step back for a moment from the story of Israel and ask the question, why, why was Israel chosen? Why did God ever take an interest in this people? And what was the purpose of his choosing? Why did he even care? I'm convinced that in this passage in Deuteronomy 7, we discover the deepest of all the doctrines of grace. And that's not an overstatement. I, I think it's important, though, to, to notice that, that what we have here is both the most profound grace set alongside of some of the most ferocious policy in all of the Bible. And Deuteronomy 7 shows us how those two things are actually, actually intimately related to one another. Why was Israel called to fight this holy war? What was the purpose of this disturbing and shocking policy? The reason is found in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Did you catch what's being said there? Because the people were chosen to be the Lord's treasured possession, they were called to fight. Now, most of us, most of us know what it's like to have a, a treasured possession. There are certain things that we could give up and 
we wouldn't have a second thought about it. We wouldn't mind giving it away. But then we have that, that treasured possession. You know, if your house was burning down and you had just a few minutes to grab a few things, you're taking your treasured possession with you. I'm grabbing Kelsey and the kids, and I hope Luna makes it out with us too. Um, I also have a jar in my, my bottom dresser drawer. It's on the right-hand side of my drawer. It's a jar that Kelsey gave to me when we were engaged. I liked uh, Reason Candy. Remember that candy? Is that how you say it? I'm not even sure. It, she, she did a play on words, and she opened up 50 of them and stuck a note in each one uh, saying, here's one reason why I can't wait to marry you. And, you know, if somebody saw that, it's just a jar with little pieces of paper that look like scrap, and they think it's something that could be thrown away, that it's not really worth anything, but it is a treasured possession of mine. That is God's people to the Lord. He is their treasured possession. Garbage in the eyes of the world, precious in his sight. They are precious in his sight, and he will not give her up. You know, the Lord, the scripture says the Lord owns cattle on a thousand hills, that the earth and the fullness thereof belong to the Lord, but his people are his treasured possession. He will not give his people up. He won't do it. Deuteronomy 32, a song says that the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And a few verses later, Israel is described as the apple of God's eye. And brothers and sisters, do you see, that is why this passage is so fierce. But this raises that question again. Why were a bunch of slaves God's treasured possession? And why does he even care in the first place? Why would he choose a bunch of nobodies like us (laughs) to ever be his people? Notice what Moses says in verses 7 and 8. And first of all, he has to clear some ground lest we misunderstand. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, just think about that. When God, when God called Abraham and entered into a covenant with him, it, it was just Abraham and Sarah. Literally, they were the fewest among all peoples. Their bodies were as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was empty. But it goes on to say here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's the ultimate reason for why God chose Israel as his treasured possession. It is because the Lord loves you. That is the reason he chose them and us to be his treasured possession. Now, look, I'm, I'm not trying to interpret scripture at all at this point. I'm just simply reading it. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, the reason God chose his people, the reason that he brought slaves out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed them, rescuing them from the clutches of mighty Pharaoh, the reason he was bringing them into a land filled with milk and honey, a place of rest, the reason... Yes, that he called them to war against the influences that would turn them away from the Lord their God. The reason, the ultimate reason, is because the Lord fiercely loves his people. This is his heart toward us, brothers and sisters. This is the deepest doctrine of grace. I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way. God... God is not a social Darwinist. You know, think about the way that we choose people sometimes. On what basis do we often choose our relationships? We, we, we are drawn to those with the greatest strengths, those with the greatest gifts, those with the greatest successes, those with the greatest uh, appearances, those who are attractive in our eyes. And the grace of the gospel confronts us with this reality that that is not how God chooses. He doesn't choose the strongest or the most impressive. But scripture says God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, in order that no one might boast in the presence of the Lord. And because of him, Paul says, because of the Lord, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord see here in Deuteronomy 7 we see the sheer wonder of God's electing grace and this wonder only intensifies as scripture further unfolds as Paul explains in the passage we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 God's sovereign predestinating love even precedes his covenant with Abraham. It precedes the creation of all things. Paul says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then note the connection that we should be holy, that we should be set apart to the Lord our God. In love he predestined us, Paul says. Beloved, what, what a source of comfort this is to reflect on for a moment that God's God's love for you is not based on something in you it isn't that God's love was drawn out of himself from something inherently residing in you no his love is based on a sovereign eternal unchanging determination of his will before you were born before the foundation of the earth you know we sometimes wrestle with the question 
At least I do. Why, why, would, why would God ever love someone like me? I mean, I'm a, I'm a mess. Why would God ever love someone like me? And you know the answer to that question? It's because he loves you. Because he loves you. It, it isn't a love that you earn. It isn't a love that you merit. It isn't a love based on something in you. It is a love based on the eternal purpose of his goodwill to love you. And out of his love, he has worked redemption to bring you out of slavery and death. To bring you into freedom and life. For Jesus Christ is your redemption, and he is your life. Why has God chosen his people? Why has he redeemed you? Why has he committed himself to bringing you to a land and place of rest? Why has he promised to be the Lord your God? See, friends, the answer of the gospel is because he loves you. Brothers and sisters, I I know that seems like a a simple thing to say and a no-brainer thing for you to take in intellectually, but I think it's something that we need to hear again and again until the penny drops. God loves his people. He loves you. He will not give you up. He simply will not do it. In Christ... You are his chosen possession, his chosen heritage. You are the apple of his eye. It is his settled purpose for you to be his. And therefore, he will not give you up. He will not share you with another. And you see, it is because of this that he calls you to be holy. It's why marriage is the way that it is between one man and one woman, an exclusive lifelong commitment of absolute devotion one to the other because marriage is ultimately about something much bigger than ourselves. And it's what makes adultery such a treacherous act because God has loved us, because God has redeemed us, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart as his treasured possession because that is exactly what you are to him. And so let us, by God's grace, live that way, setting ourselves apart in every aspect of our lives to the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in your, your word. We pray that you would write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. We thank you that in Christ Jesus you have loved us from before the foundations of the world. And we thank you that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world in the fullness of time to enter into this age-long conflict to win the victory for us and to lead us on into life eternal. In light of your love, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us to devote ourselves wholly 
to you in all of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.